Blog Talk Radio. January 25th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and if you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can see a non-alliterative, but nonetheless, I believe, interesting title. It's just a list of topics that we're going to talk about today. Title is Truth, Alternative Facts, Trump Speak, Weed Whackers, and Vaginas. So, um, yes, all of those are going to be featured on today's show. Like I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you'll get an idea of what in the world I'm talking about with that list of topics Uh, There's just a ton over there today. It's a few days into Donald Trump's presidency. The sky has not fallen. Uh, Some people are actually thinking that everything's peachy and wonderful because I guess the Dow hit 20,000. But as I understand it from people who know some economics, that is not an unmitigated positive in any respect. Uh, So we're going to talk about some pros and cons of things that Trump has done in the first several days as president. I assume that people either watched or read his inaugural address last week. I actually watched it due to the wonders of modern technology. I had been out running an errand early in the morning, and it was, I think, about 9 a.m. my time. And I got to watch the inaugural address live streaming on an iPhone. Just it's just wonderful, um, and and then, then of course, while I'm watching it, I'm able to kind of click back over to Facebook and make some comments about it on the same iPhone. I you know I love this technology. I really hope that the tech sector can be left free under a Trump presidency to continue to provide us with these awesome values. The thing that was most notable about Trump's Speech was the thing that was most uh, conspicuously absent, and that is any mention of America's founding principles. He talks about putting America first. He's very unapologetic about putting America first, and that's fine, but it's first operating on what principle? He didn't speak about individual rights, not even life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Uh, There was a lot of concretes, a lot of mention of people and stuff, as I would put it. So 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, very skeptical about what we're going to have, but we will talk about some of the things that he's done today. Corey in the chat room is asking, you know, I've got this whole list of things that we're going to talk about of what Trump's done. He says, how about now he wants to launch an investigation into voter fraud? I didn't put that on there. And it's funny, you know, I, I really like Ben Shapiro and he and I follow each other on Twitter. Occasionally I interact with him, not too much. I'd, I'd probably like to do more with him. But he puts this tweet out about how basically none of us really care that much about Trump's opinion about voter fraud or the media or things like this. It, it's just not at the top of my list right now to, to think about it. I, it's sad that he's going to squander energy and resources to look into something that probably had no bearing on the election result this year. That's just silly. Uh, that's about all I have to say about that. So like I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. And as you'll see at the top of the list is something that I haven't talked about before. In fact, this is the first, I'm embarrassed to say, Sam Harris podcast that I've listened to. And it turns out it's this really long one um, that gets really into the weeds of epistemology. I, I should listen to more Sam Harris. I really enjoyed him. I think he's excellent. I've seen him on Bill Maher and other things before and, and thought he was really good on the topic of Islam, for example. So I will be checking out more. But if you would like to hear two contemporary intellectual figures who've been, you know, sort of featured out there in the culture recently, like to see these two go at it with respect to a fundamental philosophical issue. What is truth? And see them or, you know, hear them do this for two hours. Seriously, two hours, these guys. Well, I think, you know, they were speaking over two hours total, but about two hours, I think, if it was worth, I mean, was, uh, you know, on this topic of what is truth. It was fascinating. And it's just really good to see, you know, Sam Harris, who, you know, big audience and, and everything else, very successful, see him insist on the importance of resolving what they think about this issue of truth before they go on to the other topics that he wanted to discuss, which was religion and the importance of religion. Apparently Jordan Peterson, I'm, I'm not really familiar with his views, but apparently he has a compelling view of, I think the value of religion. That's the way I understood it. But nonetheless, they were going to talk about that and they ended up getting bogged down in this issue of what is truth. And Here's the way that I understand the crux of the issue. I don't know if James Valiant is listening or maybe he's going to call in and correct me if I get this wrong. I'm not sure if he's there today. No, I don't see him over there in the chat room today. So maybe he'll tell me later if, if I got it wrong. But this is the way I understand the crux of the issue. Uh, as objectivists, right, we talk about a definition of truth. Truth is a recognition of reality. So there are the facts of reality and there is of course the consciousness that recognizes reality. What Jordan Peterson wants to do is he wants to basically load down the concept of truth with the the following burden. The burden is that the thing cannot be true. You might think it's true now, but the thing cannot be called as he puts it sufficiently true unless the knowledge of that thing, the recognition of the facts about that thing, unless that 
ultimately turns out to contribute to the survival of the human species. And one of the examples that they were talking about was knowledge about smallpox. So if you have certain knowledge about smallpox, if that knowledge contributes to the ability of you to, and if you ultimately end up creating a virus and you save people and everything's good, that's fine. But if knowledge about the smallpox virus eventually causes the destruction of the entire human race, then you would say that that knowledge about the smallpox virus is not sufficiently true. So into the concept of truth, Peterson is unapologetically baking in this idea about whether you should even be looking into investigating the facts of the matter about smallpox. And he says, look, I'm, I'm doing this. This is, you know, and, and, and he, you know, he says, you, Sam Harris, you are also concerned about whether it's a good idea to pursue certain types of knowledge. You would agree with me on that. And he says, the only difference between us is that I'm baking this concern into my very concept about truth. You know, is it responsible for scientists to be researching the hydrogen bomb or smallpox or any of these things that are potentially dangerous? He says it's a question, and in order for it to be sufficiently true, you have to bake into it the proper concern of the scientist to make sure that the technology doesn't end up in the wrong hands or whatever it is. So it's baking value into epistemology. And they went back and forth and back and forth with Harris insisting on the fact that things can be true apart from whether they are good, which of course is true. But Harris himself doesn't really understand the recognition component of truth. You know, that there's got to be this consciousness involved. And then he doesn't understand where to draw the line between you know, because, I mean, Peterson is right, right, that we we choose to, you know, understand truth in the way that we do. And it's appropriate that there's more than just the facts of reality involved in truth. It's got to be recognition of the facts. Uh, so, for example, um, suppose and actually we could talk about Donald Trump in this regard. Um, some people think that if Donald Trump holds a proposition in his mind about something that maybe it doesn't qualify as truth because he doesn't have a healthy consciousness that is actually recognizing the facts of reality, actually understanding them independently. Right. So maybe as held in Donald Trump's mind, we would say, well, it's not really truth. There's something about a functioning human consciousness that actually recognizes the facts of reality that is required. Um, but as I said, Peterson goes further and it's not only that there's this functioning healthy consciousness that's recognized it, but it seems to be that also that consciousness is housed in a body that's made all the appropriate decisions on the basis of that knowledge and has gone on to survive in the long term. Or maybe even we're going to require that the whole human race makes all of the proper decisions on the basis of that knowledge for it to qualify as a proper recognition of the facts of reality. So that's the way I see it, that it's baking into this concept of recognition. It was fun to listen to those two. It was for me a little bit of a, you know, sort of a philosophy exam going back and 
wondering, you know, do I understand enough about epistemology to even figure out what these guys are doing and what's wrong with it? <laughs> Ed says, not fun, very difficult. Now, I happen to know that Ed from the past, he's told me that he likes to listen to podcasts on double speed. And I do not think I could have taken this particular podcast in on double speed. Um, Ed, if you want to call in and tell me your thoughts on this. Uh, yeah, Ed says he conflates ethics and epistemology. Yeah, definitely he, he does that. And I guess it's just not an appreciation for free will. You know, the, the idea that, you know, there's, you're going to bake into the very idea of truth, as I said, the condition that the organism make the proper decisions on the basis of that. And maybe it's that evolutionary perspective that he talks about. He talks about, in essence, a pragmatism that's based in an evolutionary idea. At one point, uh, Peterson tries to exist, uh, excuse me, insist on a definition of reality. He says, you know, you have your idea of reality based in, I forget what he calls it, like scientific rationalism or something like that. And he says, for me, reality is just that which selects. And so the idea is that if human beings make bad choices and we use our free will to put ourselves out of existence, then that becomes part of reality, right? So another way to look at it in Ayn Rand's philosophy's term, uh, you know, objectivist terms is that he is conflating the metaphysical and the man-made in, in a certain way. Uh, there are certain things that we have a choice over, you know, what do we do with our knowledge about the smallpox virus? What do we do with our knowledge? And isn't it useful to say, okay, on the one hand, here are the facts about reality that we have successfully recognized and shown, you know, to be true. And then on the other hand, what do we do with that knowledge? Separate those things and realize the importance of acting in, you know, concert with reality. So, um, yeah, they're talking more about Peterson. Anyway, I don't want to say too much about it, but I think I do have a call. Let me go ahead and grab the call. I don't want to say too much about it, A, because I'm not an expert in this field, and B, because we have a lot of other things to talk about. But um, I just wanted to highlight how interesting and cool it is that you have these leading figures in the culture and on, in a top podcast talking about fundamental issues. I think this is Ed. Hi, Ed? Yeah, hi, Ed. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing pretty good. So I thought that was fun, but you said not fun. Uh, it was kind of painful. I I I you know I'm a uh, I like Sam Harris um, because you know we have a responsibility to not be in a bubble too, right? Um, right. So, so I mean we have to you know we we should spend some time reading the left and not just you know people on the right. And I, but you know, I. Of course, there are people on the left who are impossible to read because they're in, insane. But Sam Harris is not one of those. Uh, Glenn Lowry, another podcast I listen to, um, who, who's very good. Um, but this one was difficult because uh, Peterson, at the beginning, you know, he took basically what he's saying is something can't be true unless it's also good. I, I mean, if yeah. it gets through all the verbiage, you know, yeah. um, the true is the good. And and Sam wouldn't let that go. You know, I mean, he he just wouldn't let that go. So, uh, but but Sam doesn't have interviews. He has conversations, right? 
So mm-hmm. most interviewers would say, okay, you think the true is the good, and then they'd move on from there and ask right. about his book or his research. But Sam would not let that go. And, you know, if I could figure that out in the first 15 minutes that this is his position, you know, I, I don't know what to say. You know, it's just wrong. But how he can go at it for two hours, it, it just frustrated me because it was, uh, you know, okay, that's the position. The true, the true is the good. The good is the true. That's not right. But I get that that's what you're saying. Um, yeah. And, and Sam just wouldn't let it go. He just wouldn't let it go. Right. I, and then, I, and, I mean, what he could what he could have done is they could have gone on and talked about the things that he wanted to talk about, presumably religion, et cetera. And yeah. if anything came up during that subsequent discussion that showed, you know, that highlighted the fundamental difference between the two of them, then Harris could continue to point it out, you know, during the course of the rest of the discussion and say, look, you know, this is because we have this fundamental difference on the issue of truth. That would have been, I think, a good approach to this as well. But I also, I understand, you know, he couldn't, get his mind around the idea that somebody would just unapologetically bake ethics into epistemology and, you know, give up an idea of truth. And I think he also found it particularly perplexing with Peterson because Peterson, for people who don't know, uh, the reason that Peterson is so popular right now as a guest on podcasts is because he has objected to and protested being forced to use these weird gender neutral pronouns that people have made up in Canada. They actually have laws that would require Peterson or that do require Peterson as a professor to use whatever pronouns are insisted upon by his students. If a student walks in and says, well, today I kind of see myself as neither man nor woman. And so call me this, whatever it is. I can't even retain these pronouns. Um, You heard about that in you heard about that kid at the University of Michigan who, who filled in that he wanted to be called Your Majesty? That, oh, that's sort of the best, the best troll, you know, His Majesty, and, you know, Your Majesty, His Majesty, Their Majesty. Um, and, and that's the best trolling I've ever heard of one of these. Uh, um, because it's completely subjectivist, right? You have to call them whatever they think. Whatever they yes. say, whatever they write them for, you have to call them. And so it can change day to day. It can change right, day to day. Yeah. So it's so. Did you see pictures of the pussy march where women had like pronouns, like pronoun buttons or pronoun patches sewn to their clothes? Oh, I didn't see the pronoun patches. Of course, I saw the the pussy march, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about. That's how I got vaginas in the title. Um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so why the pronouns? Why did they have the pronouns? Uh, oh, because it's a new thing. I, I, if you, you know, you might. I have a bunch of liberal friends I follow on Twitter, and and uh, um, you know that they put them all in their in their Twitter handle now. You know, you know, you you click on them and it it opens up their their page, and you know their pronouns are all. And that's a new thing. You have to put your pronoun in, uh, you know, in your in your, in your Twitter, Twitter handle? handle. Oh God, I'm I'm or, so behind the time. I am so behind the time. Twitter description, right? Yeah, Twitter description. You have to. Put your pronoun. That's a new thing. Among millennials, don't get it wrong. Um, so, like, is there oh, yeah, is I there think. is there a pronoun for a straight female who's kind of a tomboy? Is there one for that? 
You know, there's 26 uh, letters in the alphabet, and there's three to the 26 <laughs> combinations. I'm sure you could figure it out. Um, okay. <laughs> you're, I'm sure you could pick up one. I mean, maybe, you know, I, I, you're, you're aiming this, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Just pick something. Yes, sounds good. Sounds good. Um, off, off the top of my head, humor is not my thing. You know, I've got to think about humor before I come. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you go, but I do want to recommend uh, Harris as someone to listen to to your to your yeah. Uh, to your I mean, now, and, and also Glenn Lauer. Now that now I, I, that and, I did, now that I did, I was going to tell you, um, Apple Apple also thinks that I should be listening to Sam Harris and or SoundCloud, the SoundCloud app or whatever, because mm. once I listened to it, suddenly my phone automatically started feeding me notifications about Sam Harris podcasts. And I didn't never, I never asked for those notifications, but nonetheless, they're there. Really? How do you listen to podcasts? What app do you use? The podcast app, if I do. That's the, the Apple. Yeah, okay. I yeah. use Overcast because it has fine control over the speed. You can turn the speed. Yes, up. yes. Am, am I right? You couldn't listen to it double speed, the Peterson uh, Harris podcast. It, it was about double speed, yeah. I mean, that's, really? that's about what okay. I listened to. Yeah. I, that when I listen to everything nowadays. Uh, That's even, impressive. Even your podcast, Amy. Even your podcast. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, mine is not as dense as as that podcast between Harris and, uh, you know, and Peterson. So, yeah. I consume well, a lot of audio entertainment. If I did it at one x, I would just never get anything done. That's right. I understand, sir. Well, thank you for calling in and sharing your perspective. No Nonetheless, so you you agree that it's a good thing that these two guys are talking about a fundamental issue, even if it annoyed you that they went on for two hours about it. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure Harris is right on what he you know on on what he believes truth is either. I mean, I, no, no, I, no, I no. I don't think so. I don't think so. He does. He doesn't understand um, the issue of the recognition component. And there were yeah. a couple places. There were a couple places where he was accepting arbitrary assertions about how you know it's possible that something is going to lead, to, or you know, that possible that human beings are fallible in effect. So therefore, it's possible in this particular instance that human beings are going to be fallible about this particular thing, and it's going to destroy the human race, right? Yeah. So, well, yeah. So there, the there is a difference between those two notions. One of the things Harris said uh, very early on was, you know, the only thing we can really be sure of is that we exist, right? It's this uh, I think, therefore, I am kind of uh, primacy of consciousness view, which sort of infects both the left and the right in different in different ways. And so it's hard it's hard for Harris. And then he doesn't get the correspondence view because he doesn't he doesn't get you know the idea that you know the, the idea in your mind, the concept in your mind, corresponds with the objective. Thing in reality, he doesn't he doesn't get that part of it, or he really doesn't believe it, or he hasn't wasn't clear about that. So well, I, was, I think um, I think that he would believe, you know, like uh, so many people that, and that of course Peterson seems to think this that once you bring a consciousness component into it, I mean, this is you know back from Kant, right? Once you bring the consciousness component into it, then that makes it in effect hopelessly subjective. So you may as you know, there's there's two things I think motivating Peterson. First of all, that you have to decide what truth means and that there it's more than just the facts, right? It's something about consciousness. Right. And then second, um, I think Peterson believes that the only way to bridge the is ought dichotomy 
is to bake ought into is, right? Um, yeah. So he's baking ought right into truth itself. Yeah, who else was I listening to the other day? I was listening to somebody the other day uh, on a podcast, I forget, um, who, who started off this discussion of ethics with, I totally believe uh, David Hume's you cannot derive an ought from an is. And then he goes on for the next two hours driving on from it. Uh, I, I think, I think they mentioned this. They mentioned that at the beginning of this podcast. Okay. Well, maybe maybe it was this one. I, I listen to so many, but uh, the, you know, okay, if, if Hume is right, then, you know, might as well go for a drink. <laughs> That's what else you're doing, right? What are you talking about, right? Yes. Um, all right. I'll let you get Thank back you. to your list of topics. I, yeah, I got quite a list going. So thank you, sir, and we'll talk again. Okay, as I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. We've got all kinds of fun stuff over there. Um, thanks to Jeffrey for the tip about the podcast, by the way. Most of the links today in today's show were provided courtesy of Rob Abiera. There's a slew of them that I threw in there as well, mostly New York Times stories telling us what Trump has done, but I have an interesting one from Daniel Henry as well. So thanks for people who are sharing stories with me. This next, so we go from truth to alternative facts. Alternative facts is a term that has come into the popular discussion this week. So again, you know, we see epistemology, the theory of knowledge coming into mainstream discussion out there in the culture and people are having to figure out what to make out of this. The headline from the Wall Street Journal piece that I have, thanks to Rob, is White House Backs Alternative Facts. January 22nd published, Harriet Torrey, Andrew Ackerman, and Carol Lee writing. It says, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said the media misreported the size of the crowd at the Trump inauguration. Defending a series of false statements by the official White House spokesman, a senior Trump administration advisor on Sunday suggested the official had been invoking, quote, alternative facts, end quote, rather than untruths. In an interview on NBC's Meet the Press Sunday, senior counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway, she used to work in the campaign, invoked this term, alternative facts, in explaining why new press secretary Sean Spicer had appeared before reporters Saturday and accused them of misstating the crowd size at the inauguration. This is a quote from Conway. You're saying it's a falsehood, and Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that, end quote, she said. Now, I think what she meant, of course, was that whereas the you know the media were relying upon counts from pictures and stuff, the facts that Spicer was relying upon were the ridership data from the Washington subway system. But the thing that's interesting then is that ridership data was fudged in and of itself. So um, he says, we know that 420,000 people used the D.C. Metro public transit yesterday, and it says it actually compares to 317,000 that it used for President Obama's last inaugural. Um, what they 
end up doing in this Wall Street Journal piece is they tell you what the final ridership figure for the entire day was. Friday, last Friday, the day of the inauguration, it was 570,557. And for President Barack Obama's 2013 inauguration, the second one, the total number was 782,000. For the 2009 inauguration, it was 1.1 million. So clearly there were far fewer at the Trump inauguration. This is what you would expect, right? Because Trump, again, got fewer votes and won the election than, um, who was it? <laughs> Mitt Romney. Why did, I was thinking of Al Gore as, because he's, he's lost in the past suddenly, but no, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney lost, but he got more votes than Trump did when he won. Also, it was rainy and yucky that day. I mean, there's reasons for this. What do you do? You just basically ignore that. You don't sit there and try to argue and, you know, talk about it at at length. And you certainly don't bring in this new concept of alternative facts. Um, You know, in in the world, there there are just facts, right? There There are not alternative facts. A is A. Either there were more people there or there were fewer people there but there there's no you know way that there can be both more and not more people there and in fact if you go through the Wall Street Journal piece they have photos taken at exactly the same time 12:01 p.m. or whatever eastern and you see for Obama huge huge crowd and you see for Trump it's pretty sparse and everything so they're Comparing apples to apples here, when you're looking at the ridership data that's also comparing apples to apples, what do you do if you're Trump? You just forget about it. Trump did get elected to be president legitimately. He might be able to do some good, but he's not going to be able to do any good if he sends people out there using this term alternative facts. It was sloppy, and it makes them look like they're actually not caring what the truth is. In reality, what she should say, she shouldn't use this term alternative facts. She should say, you know, um, he was relying on a different piece of data tending to show what the crowd size, crowd size was. That's what she meant. So alternative facts. But, you know, the, I, a lot of people have gone and, and run with this. I think most of us probably know what she meant. We think that it's it's sloppy, and we do think that Trump has – you know, a history of not really caring what the truth is about the matter. The thing that Corey talked about at the beginning here in the chat room, this idea that he's going to go have this big investigation into a voter fraud that we have no evidence that ever existed. That's also now uh, Ed says that the photo run on social media showing a mostly empty mall for Trump was a fake shot earlier in the day. So there was falsification. Well, here's the thing though, right? Um, Okay. Now we've got Tim, Tim in the chat room is giving us a photo. I'm going to go ahead and click on that and see what we got here. The actual inauguration. Gigapixel. Okay. I guess if I can see it. So what? Look around? I can look around. How do I look around? I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this in any sort of real time. Okay. I'm closing the instructions. Okay. It says I can look around now. Okay. I'm looking around. So let's look at the mall. Oh, this is really fun. Thanks for this, Tim. Can you put this out there? Okay. It looks totally jammed. 
So it could be that people just showed up later. Is that what happened? Because the Wall Street Journal gives you a side-by-side, exactly the same time of day on Inauguration Day, one for Obama and one for Trump. Now, it could be that people didn't file in to see Trump until the very last minute because of the weather. I don't know what the explanation was, Uh, but the ridership data seems pretty clear. What do you make then of the ridership data, Tim? That's what I want to know. Many entrances were blocked by protesters. Okay, that would help explain it as well. Yeah, he says the Wall Street Journal photo is a, is a lie. I think it said, though, in the Wall Street Journal photo, and let me see if I can access it again, because right now I don't know. I don't have a full subscription to Wall Street Journal. So I've got the story printed out earlier, but then you reach your limit, and it's a it's a paywall, and I haven't renewed that yet. I should do that. Um the CNN photo sh- clearly shows Trump speaking at the podium. Yes, exactly. So so that could be it. What they did is they showed a photo that was earlier in the day, hours before the inauguration. Republicans have jobs on the middle of a Friday, says Jay in the chat room. That's a good one. Maybe because Trump supporters hate Washington and didn't want to go there and or can't afford it. Of course, there could be that as well. There's a number of explanations. And yeah. You know, either you don't rely on these numbers and you just kind of dismiss and minimize the whole thing, or at least, you know, come back and, and show the photos and stuff. But I wouldn't rely on writer data, writership data, as the press secretary did, Sean Spicer, without knowing that that's full. And Corey says in the chat room, nobody was real high on this election. Also true. Again, that's right. A lot of people weren't really high on this election. What Trump needs to do is just get down to business and not get distracted by all of this crazy stuff. So alternative facts, as I said, I don't think she really meant that there are actually a and non a about any particular fact, right? Um, She was referring to this issue of ridership data being an alternative data point that is going to give you information about how many people were there There are different ways to skin a cat, as they say. Something I'm going to leave you to watch on your own time, but is very interesting, is this YouTube video that I posted in the program notes. Again, don'tletitgo.com for the program notes. Uh, It was given to me by Daniel Henry. He posted it on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook. And it talks about how Trump answers a question. And the guy who made this video, it's, it's really well done. He analyzes the grade school level of Donald Trump's language when he answers a question. He gives you a sample answer of a question from the Jimmy Kimmel show. He tells you, you know, exactly how many of the words in this one minute answer, 200 and some odd words or whatever, how many of those words had one syllable, two syllable, three syllable, four syllable, the four syllable ones, were two words only, and they were unavoidable. And one of them he tried to minimize, actually, his use of the word. Fascinating. And he talks about the fact that while Trump speaks like an excellent salesman, he is not speaking as a knowledgeable salesman. You know, the idea is that he can sell you on anything, but he doesn't necessarily fully understand it. And that's the sort of thing that made me 
make the crack earlier about do you, do you count his recognition of reality as truth in the same way as you would other people? At the same time, there's a number of good things that Donald Trump has done since the day that he took office. And I've got a list of them, you know, a bunch of different headlines for you to look at. And I mean, there's one that I actually there's two that I would say that are, are pretty bad. Uh, there's one that people are trying to say is bad, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm concerned doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. But let's look at something good. I really love this one this morning, and this is the story that is the origin of the words weed whacker in today's title. Headline, Trump names new FCC chairman Ajit Pei, who wants to take a weed whacker to net neutrality. President Trump on Monday designated Ajit Pei, a Republican member of the Federal Communications Commission and an outspoken opponent of new net neutrality rules to be the agency's new chairman. If you've been listening to my show for a while, you know that I've spoken about Ajit Pei. I've quoted extensively from him on the show before. Uh, He was excellent on the issue of net neutrality. Again, net neutrality is a, you know, series, a bunch of regulations. I guess there's what, 300 some odd pages that he posted a picture of this chunk of paper when they were voting on these rules, the commissioners were voting on these rules. And these regulations govern the way that internet service providers can either choose to or are not able to discriminate in terms of the, the traffic that it facilitates on, on the internet. So for example, Time Warner Cable, internet service provider, can decide to either allow me to download a certain website faster or slower, depending on a variety of factors, according to its own business decisions, right? And what the FCC decided that it wanted to do is that it wanted to take control over the way that a company regulates the download speeds and the traffic and everything else on the internet. And how did they do this? They made it so that the government, the federal government, is treating Internet service provision as a utility. And what Pei wants to do is he wants to undo this. He wants to undo not just this regulation, but a whole bunch of other regulations. Here's the real money quote from Pei. Actually, there's a couple different – well, this is the quotation. There's There's another fact about him, which I love as well. Let me give you the quotation says, we need to fire up the weed whacker and remove those rules that are holding back investment, innovation, and job creation, end quote. And this is a speech that he gave last month that was looking ahead to having Republican control of the FCC. Uh, they say that Pay sprinkles his speeches with pop culture references. So he's, you know, good at this, like Trump as well. I would say he speaks more intelligibly. Than Trump does. He says uh, he's adept at social media, too. During the net neutrality debate, he tweeted a photo of himself with a 332-page proposal and lamented the FCC rules that didn't allow him to make make it public. Now, how's this for a new concept? It says, Pay has pushed for FCC proposals to be released before commissioners vote on them. So can you imagine 
there are these regulations that are coming out of the FCC. These proposals turn into these rules that govern all of us. And as it stands right now, they are not required to release these to the public before commissioners vote on them. We don't have the right, the ability to comment on them. That's ridiculous. Uh, now, it turns out that net neutrality, as you know, they did vote on it. It was passed in a 3-2 vote in 2015. In addition, those rules, the net neutrality rules, were subsequently challenged in court and upheld in the federal court. That's not saying much. That's not saying that they're good or, you know, that they should continue in any way, shape, or form. It just said that somehow, for whatever reason, that federal court found it constitutional for the FCC to designate internet service provision as a public utility. In any event, what pay wants to do is get rid of that. There are a number of, I guess, liberals who are saying, oh, it's not going to be so easy because after all, it was upheld by a court of law. I, I wanted to say something obscene about that, but that's just BS. So, uh, if they can pass a rule and institute, you know, pass a proposal, right, vote on a proposal, the commissioners vote on a proposal, and then suddenly there's all these new rules governing an industry, seems that they can undo it exactly the same way, and that's what we need to do. But instead, Wheeler, who's the outgoing, the Democrat commissioner in charge, you know, of putting net neutrality you know, imposing it on us. He says, I think it's going to be difficult to just waltz in and say we're going to overturn everything. In this case, no, and, and I don't have any objection whatsoever for them just coming in, having a 3-2 vote again, and undoing this exactly the same way that it was imposed upon us. More power to him and more power to Trump for appointing him. Now, I can't say the same thing about the way that Trump is going to be doing everything else on his agenda, in particular the one thing that I, I'm wondering about. <laughs> in the chat room, they're talking about the court that upheld the regulations, the net neutrality regulations, a court of subjective law. <laughs> yeah. um, weed whacker, pull it out at the roots, says Jay. Yeah, the weed whacker is still, it's such a great image. Is such a wonderful image to think, okay, there's all these regulations out there and you're just going to take a weed whacker to all of them. I see James has joined us in the chat room. Uh, too bad you weren't on earlier, James. Maybe at the end we can, if you wanted to say something about the, the Peterson and Harris podcast again, we can, we can do that if you want to call in. Uh, so that's the first thing. And this, this is good, right? They're, it's unqualifiedly good. As far as I know, of course, Peterson would say, I can't say that it's good that Ajit Pay is going to get rid of net neutrality until we know, because it's part of the Trump regime that this is happening. And of course, the Trump regime could ultimately be bad for people. And so therefore, I'm probably not even allowed to have this show and say anything pro or con about whether you know, what Trump is doing is, is good. I can't evaluate it at all because I don't know in the long term, not even in the first four-year term, what's going to happen with the Trump presidency. But nonetheless, I'm trying. So I think, I think that Peterson would allow me to say that it's locally true that this is a good thing, um, that it's good to get rid of these net neutrality regulations. I think I'm entitled to say that. Let me see if James says that. Yeah, that's okay. 
Oh, Rob says that there's great stuff by Ajit Pay on Twitter, Ajit Pay FCC. Go ahead and follow. Yeah, I may have to follow. Um, and James, like I said, you can tell me whether I'm I'm speaking out of turn in saying that anything that Trump is doing is is good or bad. Here is something that is probably overall good. We could say it's a little bit mixed because there's an eminent domain issue here. But the headline, New York Times today, Trump revives Keystone Pipeline rejected by Obama. So he has a sign, he signed an executive order essentially undoing what Obama has done by executive order. Obama has held up the pipeline. And now Trump is saying we're not going to hold it up anymore. President Trump says the article sharply changed the federal government's approach to the environment on Tuesday as he cleared the way for two major oil pipelines that have been blocked and set in motion a plan to curb regulations that slow other building projects. In his latest move to dismantle the legacy of the predecessor, Mr. Trump resurrected the Keystone XL pipeline that had stirred years of debate and expedited another pipeline in the Dakotas that had become a major flashpoint for Native Americans. He also signed a directive ordering an end to protracted environmental reviews. And I actually think that might be the best and most positive news that we have. Uh, He starts out Trump, you know, I am to a large extent an environmentalist. I believe in it. Okay. Um, I don't know how much he actually believes in any particular thing. But then listen to what he promises to do. He says it's out of control, this, you know, kind of kowtowing to environmentalism and and regulation. He says it's out of control. We're going to make it a very short process. And here he's talking about the review process for projects like the Keystone Pipeline. He says, and we're we're going to either give you your permits or we're not going to give you your permits, but you're going to know very quickly And generally speaking, we're going to be giving you your permits, end quote. Now, it's the last phrase there or clause, right? We're going to be giving you your permits, which is the one that we love. Generally speaking, he says, we're going to be giving you your permits. So you're much more likely to get permits now. uh, But if you're not going to get it, you're going to know it very quickly. And that, of course, is at least more merciful This idea of people trying to invest in a long-term project and being held up for years or decades I've heard about, right? I had Timothy Sandifer on this show in the spring, and we were talking about all the regulations in California that hold up the ability of people to build on their own land, the land that they own, right, Um, for environmental reasons, And there were people who had been sitting on land in Lake Tahoe, I think, for two decades, at least one decade. I believe he said two decades. These people own this land. They've invested in it. They've spent a bunch of money on it, and they cannot build on it because they're held up by environmentalists. This kind of thing has to stop. I don't know that Trump's going to be able to help us out with respect to California because it's a state law issue and everything else. But to the extent that the federal government can – pull back and allow a lot more projects to go through. That's a great thing. Now, on the other hand, if the thing that comes along with this is the federal government basically forcing the increased use of eminent domain or allowing the increased use of eminent domain, 
then that's another story, right? It's one thing to say, okay, the federal government won't stand in the way of this happening, but that it's a different thing entirely to say that the federal government is going to, you know, enhance or increase the use of eminent domain in a project like this. So that's how I'm saying this could be mixed. From what I'm reading here in the New York Times article, it's simply a pulling back on the you know, the stop signs that people have been getting for environmental reasons, that they're actually being given the go ahead and they're not going to be held up on, you know, because of so-called climate change. Now, what are we talking about here? Oh, they're talking about Obamacare as well. Oh, sending in troops into Chicago. Yeah, that's another thing. He says if they can't handle the crime in Chicago, then he's going to send. This has been a tweet. This hasn't been an actual thing yet, so... Uh, we'll probably tackle that as and when it becomes something real. Right now I'm actually looking at the list of concrete things that he's already done. I've got a couple calls. I'm going to go ahead and grab one right now. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Wyatt. The, Wyatt, is that your name? Hello? Ryan, yep. Hello, oh, Ryan? Ryan, hi. Yep. How, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, yeah. Great. Um, well, I, want, I saw you've got uh, Ayn Rand mentioned in your show notes. I'm a new listener, um, so I just had a few questions. Do you consider yourself an objectivist? Certainly. Why? Oh, well, just uh, just wondering if you would also consider yourself a libertarian or, or anything like that. Well, so libertarian is distinct from objectivist. Libertarian is a somewhat vague term referring to political positions, the constellation of political positions that you know, essentially tend to minimize the role of government in human life. But libertarians have kind of a wide you know, range of positions, and objectivists don't necessarily agree with all of those. Like, for instance, objectivists aren't anarchists, and there are a number of libertarians who are anarchists. Right. I, I would be one of them. Um, okay. When I came through that route first and then discovered Ayn Rand. Instead of the other way around, I suppose. Are you are um, you still yeah. in favor of the anarchist position, or are you at this point am, thinking yeah. that government government can be good if it's properly limited? I think just it's inherently um, immoral, non-taxation of theft, and uh, the non-aggression principle, and all of that. Well, what if you what if you were able to come up with a scheme for taxation like Ayn Rand had proposed in one of her essays, a voluntary taxation scheme, whereby uh, the example that she gave is that a business like Apple, you know, suppose Apple is making a contract with the Gorilla Glass people. You know, Gorilla Glass makes the wonderful screens that we have on our iPhones. So Apple makes that contract with Gorilla Glass for Gorilla Glass to supply all this that they need to make our beautiful phones. And what Rand proposed is that Apple would pay a tax of 3% of the value of that contract in order so that that contract could be enforced in a court of law if Apple needed to later. So paying for the use of services that it wanted to use. Apple could choose whether or not to pay the tax, but most businesses, knowing that they would actually want to enforce their contracts in a court of law, would probably choose to pay that tax. 
What, what if we could finance all the proper functions of government that way and we wouldn't have to have the involuntary taxation system that we have right now? Would that work? Well, that's, that's an interesting idea that I haven't heard of um, before necessarily. Um, so thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. I'm um, just thinking out loud. Um, so the, the taxes would be paid for the government, essentially, and then the government would be enforcing the contracts. Yeah, like so obviously, you know, like one one thing one thing that government is good for is providing an impartial arbiter for disputes. So there may be a dispute that arises between Apple and Gorilla Glass as Gorilla Glass starts to perform that contract and supply, you know, shipments of the Gorilla Glass to Apple. Suppose there's something that's ambiguous in the contract and Gorilla Glass, they believe that they've performed it fully and completely, and Apple says, no, actually, your performance of this contract was deficient in certain respects, and here's why. They have this dispute, honest dispute, right? They're both you know, businesses just trying to do their thing. Isn't it good for them to be able to go to a court of law and have an impartial arbiter of that dispute? Um, I, I suppose so. Um, the question is, how would the, the the contract then be enforced by the court of law? So the so the court would then go ahead and order that you know one pay the other a certain amount of money or or whatever. And Apple and and you know Gorilla Glass Company they agree that they have subjected themselves to the jurisdiction of of this court. You know they're within the territory and all those things. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it, it, it's a court order, and I guess, you know, at the end, if you have a contempt of court, you can eventually go to jail or have assets seized or whatever, but um, it would probably never come to that. No, oh, it seems to come to that quite often. You get, like, child support, for example, um, you know, men going to prison for, for failure to pay child support and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Business contracts and such, um, you know, I'm not too familiar with that. I'm not. I'm not that high up in the business world to have to deal with those kind of situations. Um, right. But I mean, that it's the, the the enforcement, the force part of it that, as a libertarian, um, would violate the non-aggression principle. I mean, unless it's you're in a life or death kind of lifeboat situation where if you don't, I don't know, collect corporate revenue, then you're going to die or something, which um, seems like a stretch. But um, certainly, I mean, contracts need to be enforced or at least followed, and people need to follow the word and, uh, you know, not commit fraud and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, way, way on down the road, um, you know, maybe it would be possible to uh, to put a better system in place through, uh, you know, voluntary enforcement, uh, ostracism, and, and those sort of things. But that's, um, that's like way at the, you know, one of the last things that, that would be cut from the government, I'm sure. Um, you know, the, the well, and, and people, this the, is the, the thing, you know, people... Thing. People could choose to go that route or not, right? So suppose Gorilla Glass says, yeah, well, I don't want to make a contract with Apple if Apple's going to go ahead and, you know, pay the stamp fee and maybe bring me before this court, you know, et cetera. Then the question is, if two people can't even agree that they're going to have their, you know, any contractual disputes arbitrated or, you know, adjudicated by this impartial body, the judge, then what sort of assurance do you have about the contract? You know, either making an actual written contract 
in order to know that you've got something to rely upon if the performance doesn't go as you hope. Uh, if it, you know, it, that's either a good thing or it's not. If if it's not enforceable at all, it seems that, you know, why even bother writing up and making the contract if you can't enforce mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Right. And there's, um, I mean, just looking back at evolutionary history for a few seconds, um, you know, you, you see in high school students all the time, oh, my, my social reputation is so important and all oh, my social capital. And, you know, if, if humans evolved in small hunter-gatherer groups of 50 people where you know everybody and if somebody doesn't uphold their end of a contract or something, everybody knows about it and wants to do business with them again, you know, or, uh, right. or ostracize and that sort of thing. Um, well, and now, and now it's very city, easy. You don't have that now, kind of but, accountability. But, well, uh, now on, on social media, it's easy to smear anybody in, in a couple of seconds. So, so, Ryan, you're a new listener and you called in simply because you had seen the name Ayn Rand there and, and you just kind of wondered – where I stood with respect to libertarianism. That's why you called. Right. I mean, there's there's a lot of conservative and and uh, conservative and liberal talk shows on on Blog Talk Radio. You don't see a lot of Ayn Rand or libertarian or that sort of thing. So, I'd call in and say hello and, and chat with you for that. Oh well, yeah, definitely. Thank you for checking it out. The other person who you'd like to hear, I think, on on Blog Talk Radio is Jerron Brook. He's the head of the Ayn Rand Institute, and he does some shows here on Blog Talk as well. You might enjoy. So. Um, I, th- I thank you for calling. I'm going to go ahead and let you go if you don't mind, because I've got a couple other callers, and then I've got this huge list of things that I want to get through over at the program notes. That's, that's, but that's I, I, I appreciate you, you calling in and welcome. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Bye now. Okay, let me go ahead and go to the next call. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, I'm it's Harold. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Harold. You've got something here on topic today because I am kind of already running behind on my list. Yeah, on topic, delays, regulatory delays. So when it turns out the current uh, nuclear licenses that have just been issued, they've Mm -hmm. been at this for almost 30 years, and they finally got their licenses. We're talking about a handful of licenses that finally came through. So now that doesn't include the 10 years, you know, for construction that still has to start. So we're talking about 40 years. I mean, at this point, there's no catching up. It's impossible to deal with. Luckily, there's some good news this week. Um, 115th Congress, H.R. 590. It's a a bill for uh, licensing uh, and having a formal regulatory process for non uh, non-pressurized uh, water reactors. So this is new. This is the new fourth-generation stuff, the stuff that can burn up nuclear waste and all kinds of good things. Um, that's going through, and it looks like Trump will sign it. So this is the best news I've heard in, in a decade on this whole subject. Yeah, Finally, you know, again, any, anything anything that is pulling regulations off, the, you know, what, it, what Pei talks about from the FCC of – taking weed whackers to regulations, this is a beautiful thing. And I would say it's an unqualifiedly beautiful thing. You know, whatever context you want to put it in, if you are pulling regulations off and letting people decide how to spend their money and their time and their resources and, you know, letting them go to the arbiters in the market to figure out whether they succeed, I think that's wonderful. There's The whole business was frozen because they had a fixed model based on old technology from 50 years ago, from your grandfather's time. And so anything new that came along, there was no structure, no formal structure for regulation. Because of the security aspect, nuclear has to be regulated at some degree, at least for the security aspect. So there was no formal process. And so you couldn't get investors' money. 
and there have been hearings and if you watch the hearings it's sort of like watching paint dry but there were some highlights and one of the highlights was when Leslie Dewan they asked her well why can't you get private investors and she says I could get private investment for a 10 billion dollar oil well because it's a known process but I can't get um, investors to put money in for something that we have no no path to get uh, authorized and so, so now so at are, least there'll be are you are you saying that they wouldn't get they weren't able to get investors because they couldn't get the authorization they needed the authorization before they could get the investors yeah the paperwork would ask well where is your backup steam generator and they, of course they don't have it the new ones are completely different the technology is new they use gas turbines they use all kinds of new technologies okay. That's completely different. So you can't even ask the questions are irrelevant. They're questions to do with old technology from two generations ago. So they have absolutely nothing. So you can't fill out the forms, of which there are 50,000 pages just for a typical application. Now, I don't think anyone even reads them, but they have to fill them out. It takes hundreds of people to fill out the... this This is really the horrific aspect of it, right, that you have people who know little or nothing about what you're doing. And they are the gatekeepers. They are the people with the power to say yes or no. You're either going to be able to do this or you're not. And, you know, they have you fill out all the forms, like you say, and they probably don't even read them. This, it's horrific. So you're saying that this is coming to an end under Trump and that this is a good thing. Yeah, it's been building for a while. There are three Democrats, two Republicans. When I watched the hearings about a year ago where Leslie Dewan testified, the only person, uh, one of the witnesses that was against it was one of these old barnacle concerned scientists, new left, you know, commie types, you know, okay. who had his alternative facts on on this. And everyone else, including all the politicians. I, re- I really don't want to keep using that term because it, it doesn't mean what everybody's saying it means as far as I can tell. When I look at the context, I know what she meant. But, yeah, go on. But he was, this guy was stuck new left, stuck on, on wrong new left terminology and, and mm-hmm. was not getting off it. And they just moved the whole process forward, and now it's out, and it's moving. Uh, finally, after 10 years of evangelizing okay. on the subject. Well, looks- that's, that's great. That's, a, that's, a, that's another bit of good news. Harold, I'm going to have to let you go because i got to get back yeah. to the, By the way, other I list saw the picture. Topics. I saw the big Trump picture, and it's yeah. recommended. You can zoom around, and it is packed. Uh, people who were oh, there yeah, no, I did. I, I saw to. it. I saw it, thanks to Tim, because Tim put the link in yeah, the chat room, great. and I actually, in real time, I sat here and scrolled through it. Um, I figured right. it out on the fly. Thank, thank you, Harold, and, and we'll right. uh, we'll talk again. Feel free, of course, as usual, to post things at the at the blog. By the way, that reminds me, um, over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, already I got a comment from listener Craig, who I think is also hanging out in the chat room there, and a bit of good news is that. Ladar Levison of LavaBit has brought LavaBit back under Trump. And I think, you know, with good reason, people like Ladar Levison, people who, you know, are standing behind Snowden, are concerned about what happens to privacy in a Trump administration. And LavaBit is active again. It's offering various different types of services. I think people who were former LavaBit Customers have a little bit of a leg up on the rest of us, but if you would like to check that out and make use of their services in order to ensure your privacy, that might be a way to go. So thanks for Craig for doing that. You know, again, for me, 
Personally, biggest concern under a Trump administration is the fate of Snowden and the fate of privacy, third-party doctrine, all of those issues. Uh, Another thing that Trump has done this week, and I don't think he's done it in an invalid way, but substantively I don't like it, is that Trump has abandoned the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, like any trade agreement, you know, your own book has talked about this at length too, that it's going to have good and bad things baked into it. But generally, these trade agreements are geared toward freeing trade up, making trade freer, so that if there was this long negotiation process in which we had potentially achieved a lot of significant opening of markets, and then Trump just gets rid of that on the idea that, yeah, we don't really need free trade. We need to negotiate these new deals that are going to be really tough. And I, I don't like that necessarily. So I would not see this as a good thing. Some people might, but the I would not see these, you know, the obliterating of these trade deals with one fell swoop as as a great thing. Whenever we've got these trade deals that are going to achieve a significant opening of markets. I'd say, you know, leave it. Don't just get rid of the entire thing. Maybe you want to to modify, but he abandons it entirely. Another thing that Trump has done is he issued an executive order scaling back parts of Obamacare. Is this just window dressing? Another question is, should he be doing this by executive order? There's so many of us who I have think, you know, I think rightly have criticized Barack Obama of rewriting Obamacare, of legislating on the fly, of doing something that should have been done by going through the House and the Senate and passing an amendment to the Obamacare legislation, isn't it the case that should be following that proper procedure and not necessarily doing this by executive order? It's fine for him to appoint Ajit Pei, and it's fine for Ajit Pei to go through the same procedure and getting rid of net neutrality as they did when they instituted net neutrality. But remember, Obamacare was passed by legislative process. Now, it was in some ways perhaps a questionable legislative process, but it was legislative. And, you know, what what is Trump really doing here? Does it amount to anything? Says that he directed government agencies to scale back as many aspects of the Affordable Care Act as possible moving within hours of being sworn in to fulfill his pledge. The one-page order, he signed it hastily in in a hastily arranged Oval Office ceremony shortly before departing for the inaugural balls. It gave no specifics about which aspects of the law it was targeting, but its broad language gave federal agencies wide latitude to change, delay, or waive provisions of the law that they they deemed over-costly for insurers, drug makers, doctors, patients, or states suggesting that it could have wide-ranging impact and essentially allowing the dismantling of the law to begin before Congress even removes to repeal it. To me, this means chaos, right? Um, What is overly costly? What one agency is going to say is overly costly, another agency is not going to say. Are you going to have one agency saying A, another agency saying non-A, and then everybody just confused and frozen in their seats, not able to do anything, go ahead, seek a prompt repeal of the law, but let's do it in an orderly fashion, not based on a one-page vague executive order that is going to purport to to repeal all this. 
let me see what else I've got in the list of Trump actions here. Oh, here's one that bothers me a bit. Well, there's one part that bothers me and there's one part that is promising. Trump is ordering. Uh, sorry, we've got a little bit of sound here from the New York Times website. That's annoying. Trump to order Mexican border wall and curtail immigration. President Trump on Wednesday is will order the construction of a Mexican border wall, the first in a series of actions this week to crack down on immigrants and bolster national security, including, writes the Times, slashing the number of refugees who can resettle in the United States and blocking Syrians and others from, quote, terror-prone nations from entering, at least temporarily. Now, with the wall, one thing that the subhead at the New York Times website was talking about was that he was directing our money be spent on the wall. If you remember in the election, you know, in the campaign, he was promising, well, the Mexicans are going to pay for this wall. As I understand it, what he's trying to do today is he's actually having our funds diverted to the building of this wall. And given whether this wall is going to be effective or not, that that's really an open question. How much do we really want our tax dollars spent on this in the first place? That's a question. I'm, I'm all in favor, though, of restricting immigration from certain areas of the world premised on the fact that it is, in some cases, impossible to effectively screen out who is a terrorist among the, you know, the purported refugees. So what he's doing here with the border wall and immigration border wall, I'm not so thrilled about, I'm not sure how effective it is. And I think it might just be a boondoggle, a lot of money spent for little benefit in terms of curtailing immigration. I, as far as I understand what he's doing, that he's going to put a temporary freeze on immigration from certain parts of the world including Syria, the refugee population, and he's going to insist on enhanced screening procedures before reopening immigration from these areas and enhanced screening procedures, I think, across the board. I'm fine with that. If it's ideological screening, there's another thing. I've got a post on my blog if you want to read about it. I'm answering Ed Maslish on the issue of ideological screening, so you can check that out if you want to. Uh, There's a tweet out there that I just had to share with you. I've got it in the program notes. I don't even know who Trevor Noah is, but this is great. He says, Lord in heaven, why did the first politician to follow through on his promises have to be Donald Trump? You know, you say, look, Donald Trump, he promises all his things. And sure enough, he comes in, border wall, executive order. And, and, you know, do you want Donald Trump doing all this stuff by executive order? That's a question as well. We have been really staunch critics of doing things by executive order when Obama's been doing them. What is accomplished, you know, first of all, with this executive order about Obamacare? And, you know, second, wouldn't we like to see him go through the proper legislative process before some of this? Um, You know, if he wants to show himself as a man of action on the things that he's promised, that's fine. Why doesn't he say, okay, he spoke with so-and-so about introducing legislation about the Mexican border wall, about scaling back parts of Obamacare, et cetera? Um, You know, talk about how serious this is. Yes, we do need to immediately now take the first step 
to roll back Obamacare. Maybe you're going to dismantle it over the next couple of years. I could see that happening, right? Because it's been around for several years now and people, you know, sort of need to plan their lives and plan long range. So I could, I could see that you're not going to have everything completely dismantled immediately. But nonetheless, you should insist on passing the legislation as soon as possible, signing it, and that legislation would say that we are taking the very first steps, as many as possible, right now, this instant. Don't delay it, you know, don't delay starting the dismantling process for years or whatever it is they're talking about. I, I just, I see chaos coming from this executive order, though, so I'm not too happy about that. Let me go over to the switchboard. I do have a call. I'm going to go ahead and grab it. I think this is Debbie. If you're on the switchboard and you want to talk, go ahead and press the one button. There's one person who I think is saying, yeah, I want to talk. No, I don't. If you do, press the the one button. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Hi, Amy. I'm doing very well. And you? I'm doing pretty well here. All right. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to comment briefly on the executive orders. And um, I think you're absolutely right that uh, it, one should be concerned about executive orders that appear to be aligned with one's own interests just as much mm-hmm. as executive orders that are opposed to it because just look, all this stuff, Obama with his pen and his phone, and, and, and now Trump's coming in and reversing a lot of that, which, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's superficially it's good that he's reversing a lot of the things that Obama had put in place, but but then someone else can just come in and, reverse it again. So basically it just creates this total instability where just depending on the mood uh, of whoever's in office and what they feel like doing at any given time, sweeping right. changes can be made. That's absolutely, yeah. that's like anarchy almost. Well, I mean, and so, so the way that I would handle it if I were Trump is I would say insofar as Obama put something in place by executive order, Trump would say, I'm going to nullify it by executive order, right? Um, and then at the same time, Trump should work with Congress to institute legislation to reduce the scope of the executive order power, you know, the power that a president has to use executive orders. Insofar as it's been sort of vague or ambiguous what that power is, and then, po- you know, uh, that uh, Obama has been sort of pushing that, you know, the limits of that ambiguity in order to expand executive power, maybe there is a law that could be passed that could make it less ambiguous what the borders of that executive power are, and Trump could get behind that. But insofar as Obama did something using executive power, I don't have any problem with him undoing it. And I don't have any problem with Ajit Pei saying, yeah, we're going to get rid of net neutrality the same way that it came into play, which is just these commissioners voting, <laughs> right? Uh, the fact that it was upheld yeah. by a court, the, you know, the fact that the, the rules were upheld by a court doesn't make them any more permanent in my view. It just meant that the court was taking a hands-off approach. So, yeah, abolish net neutrality the same way it came in. Weed whacker, awesome, perfect. But the idea of you know this one-page executive order by Trump where you're dismantling something that was done legislatively, which is what he appears to be doing. That's dangerous, I believe. Yeah, it is. I guess with your caveat that he worked actively to reduce that power and, and, and constrain it more clearly and and strictly 
I guess I wouldn't be opposed to him reversing what Obama did by executive order. It's exactly. Still, I don't. I yeah. I, I mean, I don't love it, but it, it would just absolutely require that he takes steps actively to make it so that that can't continue once he's reversed what Obama did. Because right. if he just now, reverses recall, exact- I was going to say, recall that Ted Cruz promised to do exactly the same thing. Well, not, okay, not exactly what Trump is doing. What, what Ted Cruz promised to do is what I just came out for. And it wasn't because Ted Cruz did it. I'm not appealing to his authority. It just, it just makes sense, right? That, Mm-hmm. Whatever it was that Obama put in place by an illegitimate executive order that you would say, okay, well, we're just going to undo that by the very same means in which you did it. And then, yes, be in favor of a piece of legislation that curtails the executive power from then on or delimits yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. I think is a better word, but, uh, delimits it. Without that, I mean, the only thing worse than these terrible laws and, and things is is this the total uncertainty, the total inability to plan or to know what someone's going to do. Um, yeah. And so uh, I definitely yeah, and hope that... And I was going to say, you know, Trump seems to be sensitive to that issue, at least in the statement that I read from him about the environmental regulations on projects like the Keystone Pipeline. How, how so? Well, where he's saying that we're not going to keep you waiting for long to get your permit or not get your permit, right? Yeah, that's when you... good. But then, again, someone else can just take office and go in the opposite direction. So, I mean, I guess like yes. in the short yes. term, I certainly approve of of him doing that. Uh, I think it's great, but he needs to go further and put something in place to make that permanent so that it can't just be reversed by the next president that comes yes. in. And, and I, exactly. I, maybe he will, I don't know. I'm not trying to criticize him because he's doing what he's doing now is better than nothing. But, um, but I guess I just would like to see kind of systematic efforts being made to make these things so that they can't just be reversed again in, in another four years. Exactly. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Any, any, anything that's else? No, no that's it for now. Quickly comment chime in on that now i was i was going to ask you you had talked about earlier about um you know people not going to washington dc because maybe they didn't have the money a lot of trump voters didn't uh are you as a woman certainly you feel really bad that you couldn't be at the women's march in washington and wear the pink little hats that they all wore and everything (laughs) probably not <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a mixed bag. So someone called into Jerome's show and kind of asked, like, well, well, what do you think? Though, I mean, some of this stuff is probably illegitimate. Like some of the stuff they were marching for was surely think ridiculous things, like the right to be provided with birth control for free or whatever, uh, or more laws to to um, impose requirements on employers for like breastfeeding rooms and, and paid maternity leave. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of bad stuff they were marching. Then he raised the legitimate question of whether there are some good things too, uh, just some healthy motivations, such as just feeling threatened their rights, say, to abortion, um, that that might be in danger because of Trump. So I'm not 100% against those women. I really didn't – I don't know too much about what all they were kind of saying and, and making the most noise about – but um, but I think that there is some element of legitimacy to their presence there as a protest. I wouldn't have participated in it, 
but um, there there are some potential concerns for for women that might be legitimate with the Trump administration. Hopefully, those won't be realized. Hello. Well, I'm still connected, but I can't hear you any longer, Amy. Okay, Debbie, are you still there? Yeah. Uh, oh, my God. that was it's, it's so funny because at the exact moment that we're talking about this controversial article and this protest, which some people may find offensive, is when I lost you. And huh. Yeah, and so I was concerned that you hung up because you didn't want to talk about this. (laughs) No, no, I was just saying that I think that probably those protesters had perhaps a lot of the stuff that they were protesting for would be things that we wouldn't agree with, like the the right to be provided with free birth control or um, the right to have employers forced to make ridiculous accommodations for them, like, like paid maternity leave for three months or four months or whatever. But that there might be some legitimate concerns represented there too, like the, perhaps a threat to the right to have abortions, um, just depending on Trump's Supreme Court appointments and, and things like that. So, so I was just saying, yeah, I mean, in general, as a whole, I wouldn't have wanted to participate in that protest, but perhaps there are some legitimate issues represented there. That's all. I mean, you could have gone there, you could have worn the, the pussy hat, hold up signs that are vaginas and stuff, you know, because it's really what's essential about a woman is her vagina. That's it. I mean, that's really the most essential thing, right? So. Right. Wait, were they doing that? I, because oh, I yes. I see that. I, I, I really don't know much about it. I just know there were a lot of women protesting there. I didn't know that they were, like, waving around giant representation. <laughs> they they really were. They were, Yeah. Now, mind you, and I've I've got this piece I've got this piece from National Review that Rob Abiera sent to me, which is which is great. Um, and what they say, you know, look look at this. First of all, they were actually protesting in you know something legitimate because it was Trump himself that put this pussy thing into issue, right? You know that he's going to mm-hmm. grab he you know grabs women's pussy. So so they said, well, look, you know, basically in effect, one of the signs said. Pussy grabs back, right? So oh, this, okay. you know, th- this sent the message that Trump, you know, we're not just going to sit back and take this and, you know, basically sanction the idea that you can just go grab a pussy or whatever. It's it's fighting back on on the basis of something right. that he that he started. But the the funny thing about this National Review piece is that there is an element of the social justice crowd that was upset about this protest you know people were thinking well the only people who were upset about this were these puritanical conservatives who can't take the idea that they have this imagery of the vagina out there but the social justice crowd is upset why because it quote isolated transgender women from the march because after all transgender women don't have a vagina so they feel left out well, I guess if they've had the operation, but I'm really actually confused about that, and I haven't really wanted to look into it too much. But, no, uh, 
No, yeah. I wouldn't. Okay, so basically, yeah, that makes sense. I figured that was what you were going to say when you said that the social justice what people are freaking out is going to have something to do with the fact that they were identifying themselves clearly as possessing a specific gender, or maybe, or or like you said, the transgender <laughs> women feel bad about that, like they feel left out. And like I get confused even by a term like transgender women because I don't know if you mean that it was the woman before and now it's a man or it was a man before and now it's a woman. <laughs> so um yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you bend the law of identity. <laughs> right, right. Um you get a little bit confused about this stuff and <laughs> per- perhaps there's other confusions that go on as well. Um Catherine Timp over at the National Review she says, look, you know, she says a large amount of women, they had signs referencing their vaginas, but she says that's because the comments on the tapes, the comments about vaginas had an impact on a lot of women. This is offensive. This is something I think worth actually protesting and telling Trump this is not acceptable. And then she says, if you don't have a vagina and there is a non-vagina related reason that you are marching, then feel free to express that on your sign. She says, nobody has the right to tell you how to feel, but the fact is you don't have the right to suggest that other people shouldn't express how they feel either. It's when social justice warriors just get to the point of ridiculousness. Here are these women, they are protesting something legitimate, something that you think would be embraced, you know, as a protest within the social justice Mm -hmm. movement, and they find a way to, to come out against it. It was They've funny. just got to find a way to find to to get offended and upset about something. They yes. just have to. They cannot. Nothing is allowed. Nothing can be okay. It's like just whatever happens. I don't like it. I don't. Whatever you put in front of me, I don't like it. I have to have a yeah. problem with everything. You know, it's just like that weird impulse to just tear everything down, even stuff you'd think that they would agree with superficially. More royalist than the king, so to speak, right? Maybe, but I think maybe it's just like an, an inherent sort of adversarial approach toward life in the world, just um, a ten, a, a, like an impulse to want to fight and reject everything. Um, I, I right. think there might be something deeper there, like a sort you of You know, that, that is, that's, that's actually going to lead into something that I wanted to talk about with respect to individuality at the very end of the show. So can I go ahead and, and let you go and then um, – get on sure. to that yeah, little bit. Exactly. I've only got a couple minutes left. Thanks so much, Debbie, for calling in and, and we'll talk again soon. Over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, there's some things that you should check out on your own time later if you would like to. I've got a story about India's cash shortage, and it turns out that this whole ban on cash in India is due to the government wanting to enforce the tax laws more strictly. So it just shows you another instance of the carnage wrought by involuntary taxation. Ryan, the new caller earlier was talking about involuntary taxation as one of the things that he disagreed about. And yes, I agree wholeheartedly that involuntary taxation is anti-life, as I would put it. And that article that I've got at the program notes gives you more evidence of that. DNC chair candidate has said that it's her job to tell white people when to shut their mouths. Feel free to take a look at that and draw your own conclusions accordingly. If you're really interested to see what the CIA had on file with respect to UFOs, psychics, and spies, there's a link where you can find out all about that. They put 12 million pages of files online. 
And Rob Aviera also reminds us of a story from 2014 about an app, a phone app, that will make it easy for you to pester your Congress member. I think that's something that's going to come in handy in the next little bit. So I have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about what I'm doing. I've got a seminar that I've been teaching, only a couple of sessions so far, and it's called Libertarian Theories of the Law. And so we're going to be talking about kind of the substance of the libertarian views of justice and ethics and then go into what sort of government is, if any, required to protect the rights that libertarians hold that should, you know, they should be recognized. Um, So I'm going to take on anarchy. And then towards the end, I'm going to talk about one application of so-called libertarian views, assuming you can make that a coherent concept, talk about intellectual property. A lot of libertarians disagree about that. This week, one of the selections that we had is from John Stuart Mill. And I just want to give you a couple quotations on individuality from John Stuart Mill. One is, if all mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. That is beautiful from Mill, taken out of his utilitarian context. And then it got about a minute left. He says also, it is not by wearing down into uniformity all that is individual in themselves, but by cultivating it and calling it forth within the limits imposed by the rights and interests of others that human beings become a noble and beautiful object of contemplation. Just a small selection from John Stuart Mill from of individuality, which is a, a really nice thing. If you, again, take it out of the context of his utilitarian philosophy overall, he recognized the noble in human beings. Go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com if you want to continue the conversation. Check out the Corn Gold Violin Concerto there. I shared it recently with someone who already has a tremendous knowledge and appreciation of classical music. And it was new to him, so it might be new to you. Take care, and we'll talk next week.